When he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the testimony which they held. And they cried with a loud voice, saying, How long, O Lord, holy and true, until you judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? Then a white robe was given to each of them, and it was said to them that they should rest a little while longer until both the number of their fellow servant and their brethren, who would be killed as they were, was completed. Revelation chapter 6 verses 9 through 11. The thing with like Revelation, it's when you read some of it, it also can double as like the intro to an anime. Oh yeah, <laughs> like to bring up a, or a heavy metal song, or like a heavy metal song. Yeah, yeah. It, Revelation is just one of the most interesting, probably books of literature. Not even just of course oh, yeah. the books in the Bible, just the imagery and all the stuff. It kind of gives credence to a lot of non-Christian historians believe that. John, who was author of Revelations, he wrote it during his exile, but he happened to be on an island where there was like uh, psychedelic mushrooms. Yeah, that's what I was going to say. So like, that's where that comes from. But then you read some of it and you kind of think, well, there may be some credence because that's kind of wacky. Just laying on the grass and he's just like, there's a sheet over the entire world to the four corners of the world. No, the world has corners now. Yeah, <laughs> like, what are you talking about, John? He's like, let me back up. Also, yeah, world corners, four, four of them, <laughs> four of them. Hello, everybody. Welcome to the Gems of History podcast. I'm your host, Jacob Shop, and with me, as always, I have Evan Roosh. Howdy, y'all. How you doing today, buddy? Doing just great. Doing just great. Excited to get into part two of our Waco series. Me too. As part of our episode 100. Yes. Now episode 101. Look at us. Got a lot of good responses on the first part so far, so hopefully we can keep that stride going. But yeah, I'm excited for this part as well. Yeah, thank you all for the uh, overwhelming amount of positivity that we got uh, just for like episode 100. I mean, we really do appreciate it. I got a few texts and a few messages just saying, like, congrats on it, and really do appreciate it. And we definitely have to shout out our main man, Jacob, here, because he does all the editing and puts in so many hours uh, in the producing side of things, which uh, he, he'll never give himself credit for, but definitely to take a second and give you credit on that. Thank you. I appreciate that, Evan. Yeah, But no I couldn't problem. do it without you here. I mean, I tried. Yeah, so I, <laughs> one episode. <laughs> yeah, who else would supply the blankets that we use in our studio? <laughs> I need the co- I need the color commentary. You know, yeah, that's right. Though <laughs> well, sometimes it stinks, but hey, man, hey. you know we're out here. We're doing our thing. We are out here. But yes, we're continuing with our story of Waco today, and you know, every day I look at the world and I'm just like, man, it's a crazy world we live in. And like, even though like right now a bunch of crazy shits going on, like there's just a huge earthquake recently in the Middle East, and then. A train like exploded in Ohio and no one mm-hmm. talks about that. And then they're shooting stuff out of the sky every day. And then I read about Waco. I'm just like, man, it's just always been this way. Right. You can never say these times or something like that because these times have been happening all times. Yeah, like, exactly. There's always going to be some sort of event that's everyone's just like, can you believe that happened? It's like, yeah, that, that could have happened like 
any time this year, and I wouldn't have been surprised. Anytime in human history, a lot of these things can happen and just be like, well, that's just normal. That's life on this blue earth of ours. Shall we get into part two? Continue with our story of David Koresh? Yes. Well, Vernon Howell at yeah. this point. He hasn't transformed yet. Not he hasn't, yet. <laughs> he hasn't ascended to be the Lamb of God. He hasn't gone Super Saiyan yet. That would be a hilarious part, like just in all the docu-series and they just slip in like, and also when he became David Koresh. <laughs> and they just throw in a little graphic of him like glowing. Right. He got very blonde for whatever reason. <laughs> <laughs> so last episode, we ended with Vernon Howell taking control of the Mount Carmel compound after winning his court case against George Rodin. If you can remember the, uh, the casket in the courtroom case, that was very hilarious to hear about. So now Vernon was finally in control of his own commune of believers who were followers of his interpretation of the Bible that focused heavily on the messages portrayed in the book of Revelation, which we briefly mentioned at the beginning of this episode. The book of Revelation is wild. And a huge centerpiece of their beliefs, too. I mean, they really they lean towards the book of Revelation for a lot of their guidance, um, but we'll get into that in a little bit. So after he took control of the compound, it was now time to transform Mount Carmel into a self-efficient machine that would be able to cater to the little community that it was going to be housing. And in order to do that, Vernon knew that he had to make a few changes. First of all, the physical infrastructure itself had to be worked on and made a little bit more adequate for the people that would be living there. Second, the financial well-being of those members had to be assured to remain that they were fed and taken care of. And last but not least, the Branch Davidians needed to make sure that they stayed on good terms with their neighbors to ensure that they lived a peaceful coexistence in their new home. Right, he gained control of Mount Carmel and then immediately became head of logistics and had to deal with things like where do people use the bathroom? And how much are utilities going to cost? And what's the bottom line? Yep. And, oh, wait, I don't have to work at all because I'm a cult leader. So that, that part was sick. Wealthy followers. That's always like how all these cult leaders always just draw in these lost, shockingly wealthy people. Because keep in mind, this compound is on 73 acres of land 77. at this point. 77 acres of land. Like, that's not cheap. No. Property taxes are a thing still. And I, in the book Waco that we used for our main source for this series, uh, he's, uh, David Thibodeau says that one of the elderly couples donated anywhere between like 50000 to $250,000 or something like that. And it's like, whoa. Holy cow. In, the, in a card, in a Christmas card from your grandma or from your birthday. <laughs> Thanks, Jesus, Thanks, on G- earth. And yeah. Give it to David. So addressing the first point, the physical infrastructure of Mount Carmel, Vernon put his followers to work almost immediately, going through what he labeled the withering process. The group began to take apart the ramshackle sheds and huts that were scattered throughout the property and used the material that they could salvage to begin construction on a new building. The new two-story compound would come to be known as the Ant Hill, And by the time it was attacked, it had a chapel, a gym, a cafeteria, a swimming pool, a weight room, and more. Not bad, considering this is a little bit over 100 people, and they just started becoming self-sufficient. Yeah, and half of these people are, like, not 
built to do construction work. Oh, yeah. So. There were so many kids at the compound. Like, a majority was kids, if I'm not mistaken. I, I mean, yeah, it's like a third kids. Right. So it's a lot of, I mean, they could help, but a lot of them are like babies. But it's more like, oh, they're helping, and they're like hitting themselves with a hammer. <laughs> <laughs> or like they pick up a board and immediately stab themselves, and then everyone has to stop working. It's like, come on, guys. Right, and then you have to think, do did we get the tetanus shot? Like, was that part of the... <laughs> In addition to all of those other rooms, one of the things that Vernon deemed as essential was a tornado shelter, which meant that the commune had to bury a bus underground and connect it to the main building by underground tunnels. I just always picture, like, just my corporate mind thinking that, like, everything happens in a meeting. Just everyone gets together in a meeting and someone raises their hand and says, what if we bury a bus? <laughs> <laughs> no, that's good. That's good. <laughs> write that down, write that down. Most of those living at Mount Carmel would occupy the dormitories inside of the anthill, which David Thibodeau described as, quote, a bare cell with uninsulated, unplastered sheetrock walls, no door, and a rough plywood floor. Four wooden bunk beds crowded the space, and we had to keep our gear and suitcases tucked under the bunks, end quote. So not the most extravagant living situation. No, it really was bare bones, but they had a gym and a magic school bus. And a again, pool. And a pool. <laughs> this type of living style was widely accepted as the norm for the Branch Davidians, described well by Texas Monthly as, quote, Spartan and self-sufficient. Oh, <laughs> I don't know if they know what Spartan truly means, but I, mean, I don't know if there was a... <laughs> depends what attitude you're taking towards the Spartans. <laughs> yeah, it depends on whether you just watch, like, if you're more on the, oh, Spartans were all, like, 300, yeah. or whether they were, like, how the real Spartans were. I mean, either just way. A, just a, <laughs> just a smidge of butt stuff. But. Yeah, which David Koresh is strangely against, but... Huh. And if you want more information on the Spartans, go listen to our two-part episode. And as Texas Monthly described it as Spartan and self-sufficient, others just called it primitive. And I think both are... Just as accurate as the other. Yep, pretty spot on. Those who lived at Mount Carmel came from all over. For example, Hawaii, Australia, Britain, and more. So adjusting to this lifestyle and change of culture was tough for some of these people, as you can expect. But eventually, they all fell in line and adapted to the community lifestyle. It was a pretty diverse group of people. Like you mentioned, there were people truly from all over the world, which the Britain, the British shocks me first off because this is in texas yeah i do not for whatever reason i just don't expect to see or hear british like a british accent I know. in texas let it, alone being part of a cult but then australia and you're just like yeah that's kind of just like texas as a country right <laughs> so if, i think that right if sense. texas is just like a little bit bigger yeah the only place at the anthill that had running water for a while was the cafeteria kitchen for a shower, there was a tree with a screen wrapped around it where you could rinse yourself off. The men would use an outhouse connected to the old septic tank for a bathroom, while women and children used chamber pots in their rooms. Ew. Both of those, very ew. Medieval times are back in style. Yeah. I never want to hear the word chamber pot outside of one of our stories, <laughs> like one of our episodes. <laughs> Since nothing was really insulated for a while, everyone shivered around a few electric space heaters when it got cold during the winter months. Each person was responsible for doing their own laundry, using a bucket, and hanging the clothes on a line to dry. 
The members would each chip in to help with construction in whatever way they could, some gathering and piling recovered lumber from the old shacks and cottages, while others began to build the anthill with that recovered material. As is to be expected, the men would do most of this type of work, while the women cooked and watched the kids, but sometimes they would help out as well. And Vernon himself did a lot of help with the work, retaining the love of working with tools that he discovered in his childhood while he lived with his grandparents. Right, he was quite handy. He was. For all of the things about him, he was useful. If you have to give him one thing, you can give him that. He was spiritual, but he was also very worldly. Yeah. Most of the water for the compound was stored in giant water tanks behind the building, as the water and sewage issues that the group had wouldn't be fixed before the raid occurs. And these water tanks were filled from an artesian well with a pump that barely worked. Oh, gosh. So they were all just waiting for... David Crush hit a rock with a stick and <laughs> yeah. like the Israelites. They of old. did it in the Bible. Come on, David. Yeah, you're supposed to be the guy now. But this leads into the second point, which is making sure that the financial well being of the group was taken care of so that they would remain fed and making sure that they could complete their new construction. To this end, the Branch Davidians ran a few different ventures to support themselves. For starters, some of the members were just generally well-off, as we mentioned earlier in the episode. One man named Paul Fada moved to Mount Carmel from Hawaii and sold his share of the family business he was set to inherit, leaving him with a good amount of money to contribute to the group. Others, such as Wayne Martin, conducted the multiple businesses that the Branch Davidians ran in and around Waco. Wayne was a Harvard graduate lawyer and worked in Waco to make money for the group. Again, Harvard graduate and still gets kind of tricked by a cult. Yeah, it's insane to me that these, I mean. There was also another instance, I forget which Netflix documentary is, but it's kind of the same, relatively same premise where this man uh, tricks a bunch of women to like become wives, one of those situations, but like. The woman's like a Harvard graduate, doctorate, you know, top of her class, etc. So it's just like these people, like these men uh, who are running these cults, or like, of course, David Crash in this case, they're just kind of charismatic. And I, I know that in episode one we said that like he wasn't, but like there's just that thing about them yeah. that just they can get away with some of these things. And I feel like in this case, I think. That he got, like, Wayne Martin was so smart, mm-hmm. and I just feel like he didn't fit into that lifestyle of a lawyer, and I think he just kind of wanted something more, and I think that's right. kind of what he found in the spiritual sense with the David Koresh and the Branch Davidians, and that's why he kind of stuck with them, mm-hmm. and then kind of gave purpose to his law degree. So. Right. The group, including Vernon, also ran an auto shop out of Waco where they would soup up classic American cars. Some of the members also ran a landscaping business, and for food, a lot of what they ate was scavenged shortly after the sell-by dates for cheap from restaurants or grocery stores. Mm, So very bare-bones life. Yes, this is not extravagant in any way, shape, or form. And last but not least, keeping a friendly relationship going with the citizens of Waco was done on a couple of different avenues. First of all, Vernon made sure to stay on good terms with the local sheriff. He would invite the deputies to go out fishing or hunting, and even sat with some of them to have beers at some points. 
One of the other ways was to send the band that the Branch Davidians had formed into town to play at local bars, like the Q-Stick. The group built a stage at the club and would host local acts on some nights, while more established bands, like that of the Branch Davidians, would perform on the other nights. And the goal here, in David er, in Vernon Howell's mind at this point, was twofold. To put on a public face for the people in town, as well as to try and spread the group's message through their music. And by this point, the music and the message seemed to be the two most important things for the leader of the group at Mount Carmel. I need to know what the set list was for this band. Do you I think mean, they were, like, were they were just walking out to like pour some sugar on me? <laughs> I mean, you can look up his music. It's like on YouTube and stuff. There's oh, really? a song called Mad Man at Waco. It's like scarily prophetic of what Ooh. would eventually happen. So it kind of gives you an insight into David Koresh and like he kind of knew this was where everything was going to end up. Oh, he had that feeling of, well, I guess in his mind, he wasn't going to like, at no point was he going to surrender. Yeah. Like when you see that in the corresponding siege, but uh, yeah, I guess then, he kind of called a shot. Yeah. Then how much of that is just like, did you lead the group to this point so that you could say you were right? Or yeah. like how much of this is on you purposely? But the music's pretty good, honestly. Surprisingly, I was not expecting it to be the way it sounds, but it's decent. You know what? Maybe I'll have to put it in the old VC or VCR. VC. The old, the old cassette old player. Old cassette player. Yeah, thank you. So I say that the music and the message were two of the most important things for David at this point. And I mean, he was making constant trips back and forth to California, to Hollywood, to try and sell his tapes and make a record deal, which didn't really get him anywhere. But in addition to those things, there was another. Before officially changing his name, Vernon introduced the idea of mandatory celibacy for all of the male members of the group, except himself. He told his followers that he was the new head of the biblical house of David, and it was his quote-unquote burden of sexuality for everyone in the community. There it is, the classic cult trope of everyone can... Or, excuse me, no one else can have sex or, like, do things except for me. Yeah, and this is the one glaringly obvious thing that lends towards people saying, yeah, this is definitely a cult, is, like, everyone does this. Mm -hmm. But there's so many other points that are tropes, like not letting your people leave, not letting them contact their families and stuff like that, which he didn't necessarily do. Like, he he said, Mm -hmm. you guys are free to go whenever you really want to. Uh, one of the members, Julie Martinez, couldn't contact her son, so he sent uh, David Thibodeau and her out to go find her son and stuff. So it's like they didn't really necessarily get trapped at Mount Carmel, which is different than a lot of other cults. Right. So since Vernon would be the one to populate this new kingdom of Israel, he decided that he should assume the name of David since that was the basis for his beliefs. King David consisted of the first half of his new identity, while the second half would be Koresh, the name of a Persian king from the Bible. In the court documents where David submitted for the name change, he said that the reason for the name change was for, quote, publicity and business purposes. Oh, so I guess, yeah, he's that, but also like, that's a deep cut from the Bible. Yeah, like, definitely. That's a, that's deep. <laughs> I had to look it up. I was like, where does this come in anywhere? Right, right. It's like a one passage thing. But 
I mean, David Koresh, like even if you're just trying to make music, is mm-hmm. a much better name than Vernon Wayne Howell. Howell. Cause unless he's making country like bangers. <laughs> like Deep South music. Yeah. <laughs> so in 1990, Vernon Wayne Howell legally became David Koresh. And with this new identity came a new lifestyle for everyone at Mount Carmel. The single men were to give up sex altogether, while married men were to separate from their wives and forego sexual relations as well. David said that he would father the 24 elders surrounding the divine throne described in Revelation, who would come and rule the earthly kingdom of Israel in the end days. A.K.A. he was going to have a bunch of babies with a bunch of women. I mean, that's just, when you take it, of course, the context that we are looking at it, it's like, so this guy's going to have 24 kids to rule the entire world, but it's also like the kingdom of Israel, which is in the Middle East, and this man's very much in Texas and yeah. not in the Middle East. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, he did take trips back and forth, but it wasn't like he was established there. You know? That is so true. Like, I've also been to McDonald's, and I'm not Ronald. <laughs> can you just imagine him sending 24 like infant kids <laughs> on a plane by themselves? And it's like, when you get there, you'll understand. <laughs> yeah, the fifth seal shall be broken. They're like, what? We got two more before that we have to do anything? Yeah. According to Waco, the book, David's involvement with underage girls actually began five years earlier, when he claimed to have a vision that he was meant to have a child with his wife's 11-year-old sister named Michelle. Yeah, he uses the uh, good old vision excuse several times with these uh, children wives, for lack of a better term. Well, he's a quote-unquote prophet, so I mean, kind of the name of the game. It's so gross. David himself stated that he was hesitant to go through with it, struggling with the decision, but felt that it was necessary. I mean, like, what constitutes a vision or a dream or he's, I don't know. I don't know either. I mean, he's, he had talked to his followers about like levitating off the bed, like the exorcist and having all of these grandiose dreams about the law and God talking to him. So. Somewhere in that mess of things it happened. Yeah. <laughs> God, yeah, somewhere in that mess of things, God was like, that 11-year-old's open. Go right, get it. Right, yeah. Michelle's parents, thus David's in-laws, struggled with the decision between the honor of having their daughter bear a chosen child of God, but also wrestled with the fact that she was 11 years old. <laughs> yeah, like that's... I don't, I have no words to describe like how a parent has to feel because like their faith is very strong. Like, apparently, they're very, yeah, apparently, like they're very ardent believer, ardent, ardent, ardent believer, thank you, <laughs> ardent believers is what this man is saying. So, in their mind, they're like, this is, half of them is like, this is great. Yeah. But at the same time, like, yeah, 11. The matter was apparently discussed openly during study sessions. But David's wife, Rachel, eventually said that David would be destroyed if he didn't marry 12-year-old Michelle. And two years later, she would have David's child. So when we use the word destroyed, I think we're being a little loose. (laughs) I mean... Rachel. (laughs) Rachel. Rachel. I mean, he kind of set himself up to be destroyed by marrying this 12-year-old girl. Yeah, it's when the authorities get it. Are like, you know, a little bit of a red flag. Yeah. By the end of 1989, the precedent had been set and David was free to marry more girls. And also by the end of that year, 
David had already taken three more girls as wives, with the youngest being 14. None of the babies of these quote-unquote marriages had birth certificates, with David claiming that they belonged to God, not to the state. One woman, who was a, wife, a spiritual wife of David, stated, quote, It's considered an honor to have a baby for God. You know, not every woman is worthy of Koresh's loins. End quote. So you know how I said I never wanted to hear the word chamber pot? Yep. Outside? I also never wanted to hear the word it loins. It is the most disgusting word. <laughs> that's the worst way. Just, ah, oh, that's so gross. Head. Like, cause like he's late twenties at this point, correct? Uh, by eighty nine, he would be, yeah, like all right, like, <laughs> like yeah, almost thirty. Yeah, he's getting there. But yeah, sex with a twelve and fourteen year old makes not, me want to throw up. Not like, a good look at that all. Is that is so bad. just absolutely abominable. Yeah. While David said that his intentions were purely spiritual in nature. It is also interesting to note that most of the women he chose as his quote-unquote spiritual wives were the attractive female members of the group. Hmm. When asked about this, David joked, quote, After all, shouldn't God's children be beautiful? End quote. You think that's just him testing Mars? Like, how much can I get away with? Oh, with absolutely. This? Like, like, he knew. That is so crazy. And he even admitted, like, yeah, this was like tough for me to even bring up this mandato- mandatory celibacy thing to all the guys because I knew it was going to be a pretty tough thing for people to accept. It's like, yeah. You think, you think so? You think? <laughs> Through the years, David took many quote unquote spiritual wives a good number of them being, as he called them, jailbait, from ages 12 to 17. One case claimed he molested a 10-year-old girl, but it was never officially proven in court by the time of the siege. And also by the time of the siege, David had slept with 15 women in the community and fathered 17 children with 11 of those 15 women. 17 children? Yeah, in like three years. No, like five years. That's like, that's just unreal. That's like Genghis Khan numbers. It's insane. (laughs) A psychiatrist said of this lifestyle when he was at the compound, when a group like yours fails to channel its sex drive into some specifically approved relationships, the results are disastrous for the individual members and for the group's viability. As far as sex goes, nobody knows who's who and what's what. End quote. Pretty much saying, like, once you get into this, nobody knows any defined roles anymore. Oh, right. It kind of just makes everyone, uh, doesn't make them an individual anymore, really. It just it's makes just you part group. of everyone. It's like, it's just my turn. Exactly. You got to have those specifically designated roles for people, I think. Mm-hmm. And yeah, when he said, you don't, when a group like yours fails to channel it into specifically approved relationships, it's a disaster. Yeah. Even David Thibodeau admitted that he had a hard time believing that a girl of 12 or 13 could really know what she was agreeing to by having sex with a man twice her age, especially growing up in an environment that normalized that style of behavior. Yeah, these girls had no idea. No. It's so hard with, like, every you raised in it, mm-hmm. you know? You have no other idea of anything else that's normal. That's right. the tough part. As Houston Assistant District Attorney Bill Hawkins stated, quote, 
It is possible that the unusual nature of these sexual abuse claims and the complex circumstances surrounding them, especially the isolated community lifestyle and parental consent within the clan, made the task of documenting these allegations difficult. It is also possible that the psychological or emotional trauma associated with premature sexual activity was mitigated somewhat by their parents' approval. I think that's the perfect way of putting it. Right, and like these girls couldn't really come forward yeah, because they're part of this. Like we said, they're raising it, but also their parents didn't have their backs no. on this. Like their they parents were, approved of it half the time. Yeah, so. the parents were like excited about it. It was an honor. Like yeah. You quoted before, it was an honor to do this. Yeah, it's, it's a very, very sad and very yeah. unfortunate the mm-hmm. way that these people got trapped in something like this. David Koresh defended his actions as merely a stumbling block, stating that, quote, something can be wrong yet still necessary and true. Apart from the stumbling block aspect, being wrong can be a way to prove your faith. Sometimes it can even lead you to that faith, end quote. Always moving the goalpost. Very much so. You know, like, he can, like, oh, I was wrong, but actually I was right. <laughs> and it's very bold to say that this type of arrangement leads people to faith. Right. Like, I'm going to have sex with your wife, and it's going to make you believe. It's just a wild situation. As is to be expected, this new arrangement raised tensions between married couples, with David calling out his right-hand man, Steve Schneider, in front of a study and telling him that his wife wasn't actually a virgin when they met, and that, despite 20 years of marriage not being able to have kids, David was able to get Steve's wife pregnant almost immediately. So he's just kind of a dick, too. He's just bragging about it. Yeah, yeah that's also very much just, God, the psychological like torment, yeah. too. And this, this Steve was his right-hand man like the mm-hmm. whole time, and he just calls him out in front calls of everybody. Calls him out like that, yeah. And there is a, a part in the book where David Thibodeau talks about talking to Steve, and Steve's just like absolutely pissed about it. But then at the end, he's just like, I don't know. It's just the role that I'm in, I guess. It's tough. To come to the realization that your life is just a defined role like that in a group that's just like showering underneath a tree. Like it's, <laughs> it's not a great outlook on life. Once, once you get to the showering under a tree, you're just like, I guess I'm already in this deep. Right, yeah. <laughs> Some of the members of the Branch Davidians did leave the group in the wake of this, quote, new light revelation, end quote, as David called it. But the others believed in his message and took his word that it would strengthen the community. Throughout all of this, David continued his daily studies. Normal life at Mount Carmel revolved around meals and study periods. Speaking of those meals, breakfast would consist of oatmeal, bread, bananas, millet, and maybe eggs. Lunch would be a simple salad and maybe soup and beans except on days when Julie Martinez was making lunch, and then it would be burritos, roast chicken, or grilled fish. It's quite the step up. It is like, when Julie's making food, you're just like, salivating. Like, people are there at 11.01. Lined up, like their napkin tucked into their shirt, ready to go. Dinner, however, was nothing but popcorn and a banana. That's kind of nuts. So, like, these people are very malnourished. Oh, yeah. While also being cucked by this guy. 
I I don't know if this is like a purposeful thing or oh, if like they fasting. just like couldn't yeah. even like afford the meals that they wanted to have. But it was said that David always had bill folds on like rolls of bills on him of money. So it's like you have money to spend. You could get them actual food. <laughs> well, he had to spend money on guns, which we'll like, learn about later. After dinner, the band would have some jam sessions, and then there would be an hours-long study session, sometimes lasting late into the early hours of the following morning. There were always impromptu study sessions happening as well, with everyone gathering around David and hanging on his every word. It was said that sometimes David would go on for so long that he would fall asleep for an hour or two while everyone kind of just milled around, and... They waited until he woke up and continued his message. I mean, that's that's powerful preaching. It is. If you want to call it what it is, people literally just stood around while he slept. For and sometimes these things would be like fifteen-hour sessions, and, and they would just hang out. But growing up, like going to church, it's like, oh, this is gonna be the longest hour of all time. <laughs> yeah, when the sermon's like over twenty-five minutes, you're like, um, you're in the pew, guys. like looking at your watch to the pastor, like, let's go, guy. <laughs> Koresh apparently knew the scriptures so well that even though he always had his Bible on him, he didn't need it to deliver a powerful sermon. Once again, according to Waco, David's preaching style was unique to him. He wasn't a Jim Jones type, using a charismatic personality. Neither was he a formal priest, dignified and orderly. He was well-spoken, but never preachy, and rather acted like a regular Texas boy, wearing jeans and t-shirts. He would read the scripture like he was living in the story, going from high-energy expression to low-casual discussion. But those he taught even admitted that not every session was engaging as the last. Sometimes the emotion would be flowing and the energy would act like that of a good rock show, but other times people would fall asleep or walk out to stretch their legs. But at the end of the day, all of these people believed that David was their friend, not their preacher. I mean, when your preacher is that relatable, I guess, in a sense, that he's just like chilling in everyday clothes, just talking about whatever, really not getting too emotional at some points, but also knowing when to bring it. Yeah, exactly. And it's just a different type of preaching. And I guess a lot of it, and like you kind of mentioned before, was wrapped around, and this is very common in the Branch Davidian belief system, that it's like that new lights. I believe you use that terminology, yep. which is like again, fits very much to the benefit of David Crush because multiple Branch Davidian leaders said that they were this new light, right? Like Ben Roden did. Yeah. Um, our guy, not our guy, but <laughs> Victor Hutelef. Our, uh, our boy. Our boy, yeah. Victor Hutelef. Um, apologies for the Hotep, thank you. <laughs> Hutelef. <laughs> it just made, makes him so much sillier. Sounds like a yodel. <laughs> yeah. Um, but he also claimed to like say the same stuff in that he, they were both like descendants or would be new descendants of King David and all this stuff. So it's like it's familiar language, but David Koresh, which is interesting, took it almost like the next level. Like he claimed to be the actual lamb of Revelation and like Christ for the last days, but he didn't say that he was an interpretate or reincarnation of Jesus himself. It was just very interesting with the Branch Davidians how they looked at it 
compared to other branches of Christianity. I, I hope King David knows that he has all of these descendants that he didn't ha- ask for. <laughs> Dude's just like chilling in heaven, just eating, I'm assuming, some a kingly meal, and someone tells him, like, hey, hey did you know? another one. Like, huh? <laughs> what is it this time? Another Texan? <laughs> 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 he's like i shouldn't even know what texas is <laughs> that is very fun but to your point about david saying that he was the lamb whenever someone called him the messiah david would correct them and say that he was merely just like the go-between for god and man and he wasn't really anyone special he was just kind of like he used the term lamb but like he was just another guy and the lamb was just the designation that he was given for the role that he was in. So the Pope, if we didn't make the Pope like the papacy office of just ridiculousness. Yeah, pretty much. But in his own words, David Koresh said, quote, I'm like a Dixie cup that God will crumple up and throw away when he's done with it, end quote. And then he yeehawed and slapped <laughs> someone on the butt. He spurred his horse onward. Yeah. At these study sessions, even the children could sit through a long session without fidgeting, it was said. The mothers homeschooled the children, but would supplement that education at David's message readings. The kids would sometimes fall asleep in their mother's arms during a reading, but other times they would go up by David and sit on his lap while he stroked their hair and preached his sermons. Which, for any other person, would seem nice and innocent, but for David Koresh seems kind of weird. Yeah, he's, oh yeah. Especially when he has a track record that he does. Yes. Perhaps this was a response to his lack of affection during his own childhood, but he was very touchy-feely with the kids and would kiss them on the cheek occasionally as well while they came up and sat with him. Well, I guess, yeah, in their minds, in the community minds, it's like, why wouldn't you want your main guy to, I guess, kiss your right. child? On? It's like when... People bring like their babies for the president for the, to kiss their forehead, yeah, you know? <laughs> or the like the yeah anyone in power like. right right. David wouldn't shy away from anything with the kids in the audience either. In the matter of his messages, he would speak about sex, death, the apocalypse, pretty much anything was on the table, and his intentions he claimed were pure. The children outside of the teachings had their own little community that ran on its own though. The older children would look after the younger ones, with David's oldest son, Cyrus, being the leader of the kids. He was responsible for keeping order amongst the crew of youngins, and if they behaved well, sometimes they got treats like ice cream or a trip to town to see a movie. Where did they get ice cream? What the? Did they get ice cream? (laughs) (laughs) I don't know. Guess they just had it on deck just in case. They're splitting out popcorn, like just some Orville Rettenbacher popcorn. For dinner, but now all of a sudden they have ice cream. Yeah, the kids were treated specially, I guess. (laughs) But if the kids were bad, they would be punished. And depending on the offense, the kid would be asked why they had acted badly. If they gave an acceptable reason, or if it was a small mistake, they would be given a speech on behaving better. But if the kid was a big troublemaker, they would be spanked by a wooden paddle nicknamed the helper. Oh. Ugh. (laughs) Isn't that great? No, hate it. <laughs> hate it a lot. Koresh never allowed the parents to dole out punishments in passion, though, and rather, he said that they were to do it calmly in order to teach the kids about proper behavior. It's probably another thing he picked up from his childhood, because yeah. he got a lot of emotional like beatdowns. Getting physical and emotional beatdowns. Yeah. So while this may have been a normal punishment for children around this time period, spankings were pretty common. 
The treatment of the children brought unwanted attention to the group. While David's attorney made a fair point by stating, quote, at what point does society have a right to step in and say you have to raise your family our way, end quote, which is fair. It's just a very interesting quote to say, because that's kind of the same like viewpoint that this group is taking. Like they are in control of like raising their kids a certain way, but if you keep on like extending it, then it goes into like states, like how states have different laws. And like, so you're kind of almost like dictating the laws or like how you should be raising your kids by like geographical region. Does that make any sense? Kind of. I, well, he's kind of just saying like, why does society have the right to dictate how this group of mm. religious people can can and can't raise their own kids, you know what I mean? Because that yeah, was one of the claims fair. of child abuse, like, after the fact, and that's what the attorney was making the point about. Just, like, they were just raising their kids how they saw fit, and, what point, or, and at what point does society step in to say that that's not right? Right. Know? It's probably good that we have that check, though, that society yeah. can be like, wait a minute. It gets to a certain, <laughs> like, that's why we have CPS. Like, yeah. They can step in and be like, Whoa, buddy, you're way past the line. Whoa, 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 yeah. (laughs) But this didn't stop outside forces from coming down on the Branch Davidians. A former member named Mark Brayalt, Brayall? I don't know how to say this guy's last name. Brayall. (laughs) (laughs) Mark Brayall, who had moved to Australia after leaving Waco, hired a private investigator to look into claims of child abuse at Mount Carmel including what he said was murder and sacrifice of the children. <laughs> well, I guess none of them had birth certificates. Like That's true. A lot true. of them didn't have birth certificates, so... They didn't legally exist in any sort of fashion, so... They're all in the bus. But That's buried. Yeah, he was just like, this is the blood libel that the Jews were accused of, pretty much. And he's just like, That's what they're doing over there. Oh, God. But when the investigator that was hired met with local and federal authorities, they determined that no federal violations had occurred at Mount Carmel. But that didn't stop Mark. His next attempt was to approach a TV producer to go to Waco to make an expose on the Branch Davidians. David Koresh foolishly welcomed the crew and treated them as friends, but when the piece aired, it portrayed the group as cruel, child-abusing, gun-toting religious fanatics. Oh, yep, that, uh, that's kind of a little whoopsie, whoopsie doozy. <laughs> Didn't go over as well as he had hoped. He's like, finally some PR. That's <laughs> <laughs> finally some good press, thank you. A caseworker from Child Protective Services visited the compound as well, and through her nine-week investigation, she was not able to verify any of the claims of child abuse. The sheriff's deputies even stated, quote, You know, the problem with those people out there is not that they're weird, the problem is that they're misunderstood, end quote. The CPS workers still requested that the case be kept open just in, just in case something happened, but it was officially closed after the fact. Which is interesting and very powerful testament from the local sheriffs. You know, maybe none of this ever happens, like the, but we'll cover in episode three if you know, the federal side of things don't get involved. Like, pe- many people dying. Yeah. Which uh, we talked about already, but, like, I don't know. It seemed like everything was all right in the little bubble that they and, were in. And it's, like, the only thing that shouldn't have been accepted was his child wives. And, yeah. like, that's the only thing that they should have probably stepped in and said, hey, this is kind of weird. Yeah. 
but I mean, well, in Texas, it's fourteen. Right? Th- that is for marriage. Yes. Oh, right. And there's like, that's why it got complicated. And they yeah. ha- they interview a sheriff. I was watching this documentary called Waco: The Rules of Engagement. It's very good. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I, I watched it on Amazon, and one of the sheriffs is interviewed, and he says, like, they're fourteen, and technically their parents were consenting to all of this. So it's very hard for us to really. Right, get involved, and especially in Texas, where they're kind of just like live and let be. Mm-hmm. It, it's very complicated for a sheriff to come in and kind of break that peace, you know? Yeah, yeah, that's true. But this also speaks to David's active attempts at making sure he was friends with everyone in the mm-hmm. area. I mean, going out of his way to help law enforcement and offering them like a a little retreat to come fishing and whatever. That'll be interesting in episode three when we cover some of the uh, post-siege trials and hearings. Like, there was money passed around because they weren't, like, too strapped of cash. No, but I don't think there really was. I feel like if there was, the Texas sheriffs wouldn't be the ones that would really accept it. Especially especially after, like, Jim Jones and stuff had happened so recently, Mm -hmm. like, relatively recently, that another religious group like trying to bribe a law enforcement agency probably wouldn't look good no so i don't know if that would really have worked but i i don't know maybe it would have but what all these investigations did was to bring the atf's attention to the group the child abuse cases most likely popped up on the radar of the bureau of alcohol tobacco and firearms but they really didn't have a reason to look into it because it wasn't their jurisdiction Despite that, there were reports of men dressed as dressed in SWAT gear practicing forced entry assaults nearby. Oh, God, like a just-in-case <laughs> thing, you know? Immediately. Yeah. <laughs> but when they heard about the possibility of guns at Mount Carmel, the ATF sprung into action to investigate almost immediately. In June of 1992, a UPS driver discovered dummy grenades in a package that was going to Mount Carmel, and reported it to the Waco Sheriff's Department. Naturally, the Sheriff's Department reported it to the higher authority, being the ATF. The ATF's investigation found that 90 pounds of powdered aluminum and black gunpowder had been delivered to Mount Carmel, which could theoretically be used to make illegal grenades. Or it could be used to legally reload rifle cartridges. That is a lot. (laughs) Yes. That's just a lot. But, I mean... For the 70 adults that are there. But this is all where the ATF immediately starts to take the aspect of intent right. and make calls for the Branch Davidians, you know? Mm-hmm. Like, they bought that... They could have had any intent in the world. They could have just yeah. had it to make rifle cartridges to sell. They, or they could be making illegal grenades. Mm-hmm. But you're picking that choice for them by reporting that, hey, that's what they're doing. The ATF also discovered that the Branch Davidians had bought parts capable of converting semi-automatic rifles to fully automatic. This led to the allegations that the Branch Davidians were stockpiling weapons at Mount Carmel to take on the government. Yeah, that's probably where they need to do some research into the actual religion. Because yes. again, like, the religion's so based on like the end of days, and... Another huge part of the Book of Revelation is that the entire world basically goes under 
and that only like a few like chosen believers, like the 144,000, like remain on Earth. And like, of course, they thought that they would be part of that, and subsequently had to lock and load to defend themselves. Yeah, I, it's it's very hard because the ATF jumps the gun on so many of these things, like mm-hmm. literally jumps the gun on so many of these things. Mm-hmm. But also, it's like there was reason to go and investigate David Koresh. It just wasn't the reasons that they were going after him for. Right. In reality, the Branch Davidians were actually operating a stall at gun shows to buy and sell weapons and other gear like gas masks, flak jackets, and dummy grenades. The women at Mount Carmel even sewed custom hunting vests. Paul Fata, that I mentioned earlier, the Hawaiian-born businessman, ran the trades and bought and sold guns to make money for the community. The guns truly were more for commerce than they were for practical use. Mm-hmm. David Koresh, for one, said he just liked the assembly and disassembly of the guns because it allowed him to tinker and work with his hands, which, as we know, he definitely likes to do that. I mean, he built the entire building pretty much. Right, right. Many of those on the compound, other than David Koresh, didn't actually like guns and preferred not to use them, but David did advocate that his followers be ready to defend themselves if the need arose, as is any Texan's right. That is true. He picked a great market to do the whole selling guns. Yes, the standard ground laws are very, very prevalent in Texas. Oh, yeah. While working in the trade, the group came into contact with Henry McMahon, a local licensed gun dealer who looks like a carnival barker version of Will Ferrell. (laughs) (laughs) He is a very ridiculous looking man. He is hilarious. According to McMahon, Koresh didn't have any idea how to judge the quality of firearms at first, so he didn't know what to buy and sell for resale. But under the tutelage of McMahon, Koresh learned to buy guns that were going to go up in value for resale in order to maximize his profits. David began to buy AR-15 parts cheap, assemble the weapons himself, and then profit by selling them to legally registered buyers. So at this point, all of the guns are pretty much just going in a box and going to a gun show to be sold. They're not actually like being used or fired or anything. It's also very interesting, very interesting that in episode one, we talked about everything that happened to him. Like guns weren't a part of it. Like I'm sure they were part of like nah, everyday Texan life, but they, as- def- they were a part of it. I mean, him and seven other guys came onto the compound against George Roden. Sorry, I meant more in like the like teenage. Oh years. yeah, like th- the like the formulating years. Yeah, I think um, the only time he really had him was when he because he said he went hunting with his grandfather. But like, I think that's right. really it. Right. So, right. Yeah. I mean, I guess you just kind of got in the game late. Got in the game. Yeah. Also, although I do remember him saying that the only things he could rely on were his gun and his dog. So, uh, so maybe. maybe we are misremembering things. Maybe, a bit. yeah. <laughs> On July 30th, 1992, two ATF special agents visited Henry McMahon to talk to him about the quote unquote armory that Mount Carmel possessed. So they're already throwing around terminology to make it sound like the Branch Davidians are stockpiling. Same thing that they did at Ruby Ridge. Oh, there's a lot of parallels to Ruby Ridge. Mm -hmm. McMahon admitted to the agents that Koresh was buying the guns and gun parts for resale and for profit, 
So I guess not really an admission, more of just a statement. But during the meeting, McMahon called Koresh and told him that the ATF was at his house asking about the guns. Koresh said in response that the agents should come by and see the guns that they have. But apparently the ATF agents refused to talk to David or come visit the compound. I mean, yeah, there's no way that they would probably go there upon request because, like, oh, there has to be an ambush or something like that. I, yeah, you could look at it that way. And I think that, I mean, just the way that the agents responded, according to Henry McMahon, is like they almost immediately, like, jumped out of their seats. They're like, no, 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 we can't go down there. Yeah. So it's like, what are you trying to hide? You're right. <laughs> but it could right. also just be like, we think they're this heavily armed. Why would we go there? Mm-hmm. So both sides are valid. Later, an ATF, ATF official claimed, quote, at that particular point in time, the weapons in question were completely legal firearms being transferred from licensed firearms dealers to individual, end quote. So they're basically admitting later that, yeah, we didn't have any reason to <laughs> suspect, like we kind of knew that they were illegal. Right, everything was above board. It was more just them getting a little... It was also like a little bit of the times, I would say. Yeah. Just with other situations happening around the nation. But still. Very contentious time for the ATF. (laughs) The one time and like... Probably the only time you've really thought about the ATF. Or like these few uh, scenarios. They should just go away. (laughs) So some believe that this was the ATF's way of staying ignorant on the truth of what the Branch Davidians were actually doing so that they could claim ignorance later on. During this time, Koresh had bought a shipment of guns from McMahon of legal semi-auto AR-15s and planned to convert them to automatic and then sell them, but McMahon canceled the deal after the ATF visit, which left the Branch Davidians with a large inventory of unlicensed guns. Basically, this meant that if David Koresh applied to license the weapons legally, nothing would have been wrong. But David didn't do that and failed to tell anyone else that he didn't do that. He also had silencers and live grenades, but once again failed to make that known amongst his followers, and thus prevented them from protesting to him about what he was doing. Uh, yeah. It never came up in the 15-hour study sessions. (laughs) (laughs) No one was just like, hey, David, got any grenades? (laughs) I've been hearing like some muffled gunshots. Do you have anything that would potentially, I don't know, keep those quiet? And, no, like, was... he's just like sweating, like, don't say silencers, don't say silencers. Silencer? No. Barely know her. Hey, no, I... <laughs> saved it. I got it. <laughs> As the ATF continued their investigations, another huge event shook the agency. The standoff at Ruby Ridge, which left multiple people dead, including an innocent mother, a 12 year old boy, and a law enforcement official had just taken place in August of 1992. And if you want to learn more about Ruby Ridge, we did a full three-part series on it that you can go back and listen to now. David began to wonder aloud if the events at Ruby Ridge were a dress rehearsal for Mount Carmel. By January of 1933, aerial surveillance by the National Guard was taking photos supposedly looking for a drug lab at Mount Carmel based on no evidence whatsoever. Yeah, they usually do just try to lump drugs in in a lot of these And cases. you'll see why. But, the, but David wondering aloud about the whole Ruby Ridge thing and saying things like that around his followers mm-hmm. 
it's just implanting the idea in their head that like something's gonna happen. They're coming you for know, us next. It's priming them to be ready for what's going to happen. Right. So it's another instance of like, how much of this are you preparing, and how much of this is just coincidence? Right. Right. Koresh reached out to law enforcement to come by and hang out to see that everything was fine, but even with that, the tide of public opinion was turning. David had inadvertently signed his own fate. Since he would have been legally found guilty of statutory rape on multiple counts, he couldn't appeal to a legal system without giving himself up on another charge. So he kind of dug himself his own grave. Really had to pick the way he wanted to go on that one. Yeah, so it's either. You try and appeal these firearm charges that you know are somewhat baseless, but actually you do have some illegal stuff, Mm -hmm. which isn't a big deal because you'd probably just get fined for it because you don't have it licensed. But at the same time, you could go fight it and then be found out that you've been having sex with 14 to 18-year-old girls for a while. (laughs) Yeah. Not a good spot to be in. Bad place to be in. Talk about a rock and a hard place, am I right? Am I right? Meanwhile, the ATF had approached Special Forces Command near Fort Hood to help train their agents. Since U.S. Armed Forces can only aid law enforcement if narcotics are involved, that is why the drug rumor came about. Isn't that interesting that that's the line that needs to be crossed and not whether they have like actual dangerous firearms? Yeah, exactly. They're like, do they got drugs? Do they have an ounce of marijuana? Go get them. The raid on Mount Carmel was officially named Operation Trojan Horse, but all of the people involved nicknamed it Showtime, and that was the name that stuck. Oh. (laughs) Which, Showtime is going to become a very ironic name once more information comes out about why the ATF had planned it the way they did. So you're not saying they were like sparklers and like jazz hands? Maybe. Oh. I mean, there might have been, honestly. Could have been. Slowly, they began to creep closer to the Branch Davidians, sending four ATF agents to move into a house directly opposite of the commune, who were by all accounts very obviously law enforcement officials. Right. You never see probably, at this time, probably like four mustached men. Yeah. (laughs) White men all moving in. Not all white, Ah. but mostly white. But these men brought almost no furniture to move in, just cases of equipment, and they told people that they were college students studying psychology at a tech college. It's like, sir, you look like you're 78. (laughs) And why are you studying psychology at a tech college? In Waco. Go to even a community college would be better. Right. One of the men, who is later identified as Robert Rodriguez, visited the compound multiple times, and David Koresh even tried to befriend him and perhaps invite him into the Branch Davidians if Rodriguez wanted to join. Throughout his multiple visits to the compound, Rodriguez admitted to his bosses that he found no evidence of illegal guns or explosives. But I don't know if he would have had chance to really explore the entire place, so... I mean, they could have easily hid something, too. Right. I assume that they wouldn't just let anyone that walks in just lead them directly to <laughs> hey, our, silence, buddy. our silencer room. You want to go to the grenade, grenade room? room? <laughs> I kind of That sounds pretty fun. I mean, but. sounds dangerous, but... No one can smoke in there. Please tell me it's a no-smoking room. 
Robert Rodriguez is one of the guys in this story that I feel like the worst for because he's just genuinely seems like a really good guy mm-hmm. and he kind of got stuck like doing his job and then by the end realized like me doing my job kind of helped fuck these guys over. So the ATF at this point was set on their raid of Mount Carmel and scripted an affidavit f- for the basis of a search warrant. Despite the fact that it may the Despite the fact that the agency may have had grounds for a search on the charges of gun violations, many of the other charges weren't under their jurisdiction, such as child abuse and drug trafficking, which the ATF later admitted to just making up. The House report on the siege of Waco later stated, quote, The ATF based part of its investigation of the Branch Davidians on unfounded allegations that the Davidians were manufacturing illegal drugs, and as a result, improperly obtained military support at no cost. End quote. Hmm. Very interesting. Government waste. Gov- <laughs> the ATF continued to rail against Koresh, painting him as a child molester and abuser who tortured his followers by imprisoning them for months. I mean, they're kind of right on two out of three. Yeah, they're sort of right on one or two accounts, but like, he wasn't torturing people like actively chaining them in wall onto walls and stuff now that was probably written or spoken for a little bit flair of the dramatic oh yeah absolutely they also didn't want to work with any other law enforcement agencies with mark bray mark braille is that what we call them mark braille stating that he was flown in to help the atf because quote there was a concern of the integrity of local law enforcement end quote But in reality, the ATF was mostly believed to be doing this because they needed good press, awfully bad, after Ruby Ridge. They needed a win. (laughs) Coupled with the fact that female ATF agents had come out on 60 Minutes with allegations of sexual harassment. They needed a win bad. (laughs) Retired ATF deputy director stated, In the opinion of the agents, the planning for Waco and the manner in which it was done was done for the purpose of publicity. End quote. So they needed a flashy win. They needed, yeah, they needed people to see that they were doing something right for once. Right, that they took down this monster who, I mean, Crush was a very bad guy, but he wasn't like selling drugs and he distributing been, guns to people that weren't legal yeah. or licensed. He's not a good person, but he's a, also like one of the most complicated people in a story like this. Because he's not a Jim Jones, like yeah. he's not like a diabolical, power-hungry monster, uh, but he's and he's also not Charles Manson, who is just like batshit insane. Like he's right. just a normal guy with a religious message that, whether he believes it or not, he sticks to very strongly and mm-hmm. uses as a basis for everything he does. So it's like, yeah, I mean that was his guiding light. Good or bad, right? It, like I said, doesn't just doesn't justify everything that he does because he does a lot of bad stuff. But like a lot of bad stuff. At the same time, his intentions may have been pure when he started, and mm-hmm. that's how it always goes. Eventually, a warrant was issued, despite the fact that the ATF could have arrested Koresh at any point beforehand, since he went for runs outside of the compound regularly and passed the house that the four guys were staying in. So yeah, they really could have gotten. So if they really wanted to nag him, they or nab him, they just could have grabbed him mm-hmm. at any point. Regardless, everything was in place. The Waco Tribune Herald ran a multi-part news story labeled "The Sinful Messiah," 
beginning on February 27, 1993, and publicly listed all of the charges against David Koresh. And this is where he kind of first gets labeled as a cult leader, and that's how this moniker ends up sticking. The 130 people at Mount Carmel, however, including the 43 children, were beginning to prepare for the storm ahead because they could sense that something was brewing. Paul Fada and another member at this time loaded up an inventory of guns to take to a gun show in Austin the next day. And the next morning, Robert Rodriguez arrived at Mount Carmel holding part two of the sinful messiah and afterwards sat listening nervously while David spoke to him about the scriptures. Meanwhile, David's brother-in-law, who was working as a mail carrier to make money for the compound, ran across a news reporter on his way back to the compound. The reporter asked him how to get to Rodenville, which was the former nickname for Mount Carmel after Lois Roden and George Roden, and mm-hmm. which tipped off David's brother-in-law that something was going on. So he rushed back and told David that someone was coming, ruining the ATF's element of surprise. And based on their orders, this should have canceled the raid, but it didn't. Rodriguez, upon hearing this, left in a hurry and tried to go tell his superiors that the element of surprise was gone. But by the time he arrived at headquarters, he was too late. Everyone was already gone. And I can't imagine the overwhelming sense of like fear that he felt. Yeah. That he probably could have like put a pause on that. He said that he afterwards sat down outside and cried because he's like, I, I was too late. Mm-hmm. And in the Senate hearings, it's so sad because he's like, I told them exactly what was going to happen. And they still denied that they knew what was going to happen because mm-hmm. they got communication from headquarters saying like, hey, he just reported this. Right. And they just said, no, I never got it. So once he found the headquarters empty, he realized that the ATF was en route to Mount Carmel in 80 vehicles, with cattle trailers being pulled behind a few of them, holding around 80 ATF agents in full combat gear, while half a dozen snipers set up outside the compound and three National Guard helicopters approached. That is unbelievable amount of like personnel and equipment yeah like a hundred agents and three helicopters well i mean it get and the shocking thing and it gets like more preposterous oh uh, way more preposterous yeah a crowd of journalists and camera crews accompanied the atf to help film the event and the atf blocked the road to mount carmel while the agents prepared for the raid When they arrived, Koresh said he opened the front door to see agents rushing at the door. As these men approached, David Thibodeau said that some of the agents split off and approached the dogs in the fenced-in area and shot the dogs dead. Koresh claims that as the agents approached the door, he attempted to tell them that there were women and children inside while standing in the doorway, but they weren't listening to him, so he slammed the front door. And according to Koresh, this was when the ATF opened fire. However, according to the ATF, the Branch Davidians shot first. Oh, yeah. The Branch, or excuse me, the ATF, and I have a lot of stuff on them for episode three, but like their take on it. The ATF was just, they deny, 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 deny any like, any involvement in starting this or subsequent fire, which we'll talk about later, but like, they are just 
full on like deny mode. And it very well could be that the Branch Davidians shot first. No, right. but like to this day, nobody really knows what the truth is on it. Mm-hmm. And I mean, there's arguments on both sides. Like we'll get get into once the trial comes up. But like the sh- the holes in the door and stuff, like all of that gets used and. It's just sketchy because the ATF fails to provide a lot of the evidence that they say claim there could prove that the Branch Davidians shot first. It's like, why don't you just show us then? Oh, yeah. I think we see that a lot whenever these government agencies get on trial. They're like, we don't have to prove anything because we're the federal federal investigators. It's literally an exact carbon copy of Ruby Ridge. Right. Like the sniper taking a shot when he shouldn't have and all that stuff. So it's like. Oh, and the, just the firefight in the woods. Like, yeah. did the kids shoot first or did they shoot the kids? So it's, right. Yeah, it's a whole mess. However, after the shooting had begun, a man named Perry Jones was hit inside the compound. And at that point, the ATF fo- burst fully out of their cattle trailers and took cover behind the cars and the fences. Inside the compound, the Branch Davidians began to shoot back. And according to the Branch Davidians, it was all in self-defense. This initial shootout lasted for around 15 minutes, but then there was a 20-minute break. Everyone kind of just kind of took... Like, whoa, 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 whoa. (laughs) This is getting out of hand, guys. But after that 20 minutes, gunfire started suddenly again from everywhere. Wayne Martin, who was the lawyer of the Branch Davidians, immediately called 911 and was on the phone with law enforcement the whole time attempting to get them to cease the shooting but the other ATF agents didn't have any cell phones or communication devices for the law enforcement to reach them at the compound. Yeah, I mean, very no convenient. cell phones or like no communication. Very convenient. Yeah, very convenient. How does someone have a walkie-talkie? Seriously. Like, like they're, it's just so mind-boggling. Like yeah. how, how do you prepare this whole thing so orchestrated and not have the way to get communication through? Right, right. I think at this point I'll probably throw in a little snippet of the the phone call because there you can find it online. But yeah, you can hear how you can hear the gunfire in the background as Wayne Martin's yelling at the the operator, like tell him to cease fire. Mm-hmm. It's very intense. Hello, hello. Yeah, this is Lieutenant Lynch. May I help you? Yeah, the seventy-five men around our building and they're shooting at us in Mount Carmel. Mount Carmel? Yeah, tell them there are children and women in here and to call it off. All right, all right. Uh, hello. I hear gunfire. Oh shit. Hello. Who is this? Hello. Call it off. Who is this? Hello. The ATF climbed onto the roof of the anthill with ladders, throwing flash grenades into the second floor and shooting into the windows, but as they did this, they were met with gunfire in return. A few of the agents were hit on the roof, which caused a couple of them to even tumble off onto the ground. Agents supposedly found the gun room inside the building, but said it was empty since the weapons had been taken to the gun show. The helicopters, which were supposed to be used to simply supervise the raid, ended up getting too close, and their timing was off, and they ended up in the gunfight. Gunshots rang out from the air, as well as the ground, back and forth between the community and the law enforcement agents. The most intense firefight lasted around 50 minutes, but an official ceasefire was declared at 11.30 a.m., around two hours after everything had started. By the end, 
more than 20 ATF agents were injured and four were dead. They didn't have any medical evacs, so the ATF had to slump injured men wrapped in blankets over the hoods of the trucks to transport them out of the compound. On the Branch Davidian side, David Koresh was shot twice, once through the hand and once through the hip. The Branch Davidians in total had five members dead, four of whom were supposedly unarmed, and one who was returning fire a former Hawaiian police officer who had been breastfeeding her 10-month-old baby when the shooting began. David refused medical attention, and somehow he bounced back and was relatively okay hours later. The initial tensions had calmed from a boil to a simmer, but the heat would steadily continue to rise over the next month and a half, leading to one of the most infamous events in American history. And that is where we'll pick back up for our conclusion to Waco with the siege, the destruction of Mount Carmel, and the aftermath of what happened in that spring of 1993. Yeah, just an insane amount of stuff covered in part two, and cannot wait to get to part three. Part three gets even more insane. But uh, if you want to continue the conversation with us uh, before part three, if you just want to talk to us about part two or part one, or any of the Gems of History podcast episodes, you can find us on Twitter at gems underscore history. You can find us on Instagram, YouTube, and TikTok at gems of history podcast. You can find us on Facebook uh, at the Agora <laughs> uh, gems of history podcast discussion group. And finally, you can find us on Patreon. We've launched it in, in accordance with episode 100. Um, we're currently offering just one level, one just $5 a month. Level where you can get early access to episodes. You can get uh, ad free. Ad free. You can also enter to pick a topic for us to cover each month. Yes. So a lot of fun stuff over there, and of course, we appreciate anything that's that you guys do for us. Yeah, just go to uh, Patreon.com/slash Gems of History Podcast to find that page. And we promise it's not our way of starting a cult. We promise. Evan promises. Hell. <laughs> But yes, thank you to everyone who has donated so far. And to those of you who are planning on donating, we really appreciate any support that you guys give us. And we, as always, appreciate you guys listening. So next week, we will be back with the conclusion to Waco. And after that, who knows? Maybe, I guess we'll, that'll be our first listener-selected episode. Ooh. So yeah, look forward to that. But until then, everyone out there, have a great week. We love all of you. And stay polished. <laughs>